We return this morning to our consideration of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans, we've been in chapter 4, and I want to go back to Romans 4 with you. There's a sense in which Romans 4 easily could have been the theme of the Easter message this morning because it concludes on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord from the dead. And you see that in verse 24. It says that this righteousness that's counted to us, he says, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I've never preached on that text on Easter, but um, maybe in the future I shall. Um, in fact, it was interesting this week uh, I saw that a number of our sermons from the past have been downloaded uh, on Sermon Audio. A number of them were Easter messages. And um, I thought to myself, oh man, I hope, uh, I hope there were decent messages. Because in all honesty, I've never liked the idea of getting up the Easter message. It always was for me um, something of, uh, well, why am I having to do this? Why am I having to move away from the book we've been studying or some other series we've been in to come up with the Easter message just because the calendar says it's Easter Sunday and there was always something in me that had a little bit of a displeasure with that. And I just I've come to the conclusion in my later years that it's hard to get away from the resurrection of Jesus in, in the Bible. You're going to come across it, certainly in the New Testament. And I was going to see this morning in the Old Testament as well that um, God is the living God. He's the God of resurrection power and resurrection goodness and resurrection grace. And um, this passage in Romans, uh, though it addresses uh, Abraham, the Old Testament figure, uh, resurrection's here as well. Abraham's faith is very much likened unto ours because he believed in the God who raises the dead. And we're going to see this uh, in Abraham's context in Romans 4. And um, um, again, uh, it's just hard to escape if we're studying the Bible. Um, the thought that God is the God who, to whom death is not the final word. You know, that's, that's the awesome reality we live in, this, in, in our world, is, is that death uh, surrounds us. It circumscribes all of life, and we think it's the end of the story. It's the final word. And we come to, the grips, to grips with the fact that the Christian gospel says no. God will not allow death to be the final word. The God who is the living God will bring life. And life is the final word in the fact that Christ was raised and we will be raised as well by the power of the living God. And we see resurrection faith expressed in Abraham. But uh, let me back up a bit and, and just say to you that I think one of the problems we have in understanding the letters of Paul is, again, we approach it with our set of issues, our set of problems, the concerns that we have. And sometimes we're not as sensitive as we should be to Paul's concerns. And I think we run into trouble there because we end up scratching our heads saying, well, I don't know why that's said. It doesn't seem to fit. I think if we had a better appreciation for what Paul's concerned to say, what he, in essence, is, is confronting in his situation as a first century missionary church planter endeavoring to address problems that occurred in the Roman church, and those problems were not today's problems. Those problems were not 
16th century problems. I think sometimes we think that um, our understanding of Romans comes because, well, Luther was facing Tetzel going about telling people, if you pay some money to buy an indulgence, uh, the souls of your loved ones in purgatory are going to spring out and go into heaven. And it was a good money-making method uh, for which uh, um, the debts of certain pleaders of the of uh, uh, Mainz, uh, forgot his name, the guy that was trying to raise money to pay his debts, and he got permission from the Pope to do that because he bought a bishopric. He, he, he became a bishop. by this. Everything was money. To get anywhere in the church of that day, money was the thing that was required. And money was something they wanted to raise, and they raised it on the backs of people uh, who believed a fiction, believed a lie. And, and Luther was concerned about that, and Luther addressed that. But Paul was not addressing the Roman Church of the Middle Ages. He didn't know any Roman Catholics in the first century. Oh yeah, I know Roman Catholics would say everyone was Roman Catholic back then, but not really, not really. He certainly didn't know any medieval Roman Catholics. Um, Paul knew a problem in the Roman Church, a church that was founded, as we saw from the book of Acts, largely from people who were... At Jerusalem, in the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 in the upper room and Peter preached a message in which 3,000 souls were converted to Jesus and part of that group of the converted people are said to be people from Rome. So imagine they went back home. And they went back home and they began to meet. They began to assemble. And largely those people were Jewish people. There were people who were in Jerusalem for the feast. Maybe they were Gentile people that were called God-fearers, who, though they were not circumcised, yet they had reverence for Israel's God, and they went to those ceremonies in the court of the Gentiles. Some of them may have also been converted, but largely it probably was a Jewish affair, at least at the beginning. And then we read in the book of Acts also that at a certain point in time, Claudius, the emperor, uh, he gave out an edict that all the Jews had to leave Rome fine state of affairs. You got a church that at least its leaders probably were all Jewish people. And sure, they witnessed the gospel. God-fearers came into the church. Uh, Gentiles came into the church. But likely most of the leaders were Jewish. They founded the church. It stands to reason they would be in position largely of leadership. And now they're gone. Now they got to leave. What happens then? Well, who takes up the, the slack for the elders and the deacons and the leaders who used to be there and now they're no longer there were largely Gentile people. And then that edict that Claudius issued got overturned by the next Roman emperor. So before long, the Jews come back. The Jews who once led, they come back to a Gentile church that's now led by Gentiles and they say, where do we fit in? Where do we fit in? And that's likely something of the background of the Roman letter, because what Paul is saying to us throughout the letter, not just in chapters 9 through 11, where he deals with the whole question of Jewish unbelief and how Gentiles and Jews are part of God's ultimate plan and program and how it all works out in terms of divine sovereignty and all that stuff that Romans 9 to 11 deals with, and Romans 14 and 15 that deals with those practices of keeping certain days and certain uh, dietary rules that were part of Jewish culture, part of kosher laws, 
that some observed and some did not. He deals with that. But even in the early chapters, he's dealing with the fact that the Jews and Gentiles, um, there's no distinction. The, the gospel came, yes, to Jew first, historically that's true, also to the Greeks. And now there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles because all have sinned, Jew and Gentile, fallen short of the glory of God, and all are being justified, both Jew and Gentile, in the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul's writing a letter that's really addressing the issue of how the members of the church understand their relationship to each other. That no one has any right to boast. No one has any right to say, I'm better than you. Because I got saved in a different way, or uh, my, my, my parentage is different, I'm a, from a different uh, ethnic background, or my skin is of a different color, or any such things that divides people today. This is a letter that just simply takes all those distinctions and says, not relevant. There's no reason to boast that you're an American, that you're, you know, that you're, you're Greek. You ever see the movie... Uh, um, about the Greek wedding <laughs> and the, you know, the, the father that was going around with the Windex. Anyway, he, he said that uh, you know, my, 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 my ancestors were right in philosophy when his ancestors were climbing through the trees. So there was that ethnicity of um, pride in his Greek ancestry. Well, there's no such thing that exists in the church because regardless of what our culture has been, our background has been, we're all leveled. We're all leveled in sin, we're all leveled in grace, and there is no distinction. And so the whole point of it all is not to boast over one another, but to receive one another. So that's, that's what Paul is concerned about. And he's concerned about it, not only through the words of asserting these things in the third and fourth chapter, but as he comes into chapter four, of showing that Abraham... He does not provide us an exception. Abraham, the father of the Jews, in terms of lineage, in terms of the, uh, being the patriarch, in terms of being um, the father uh, of, of, of the nation, um, he does not give you a reason to boast, because Abraham had no reason to boast. Um, because his standing with God was not based upon what he did. It was not, Paul says, uh, it's to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You put him a full week at your job, and you get a salary, and you earned it. Well, this, that's not how the gospel works. It's not what you earn. It's what God in grace gives. It's what God gives as a gift. That God gives to those who believe him, and trust in him, and follow him. Um, righteousness is a gift. And Abraham clearly is an example of that. He believed God, Romans, uh, Genesis 15, 6 says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul's concern is to say that this blessing comes not just um, when he was a circumcised man, because uh, that's chapter 17 of the book of Genesis. That's later than when God declares him righteous. God says, um, he, uh, he receives him and, and, and treats him as a righteous man um, who believed, who trusted him, who followed him. Um, and that happened before circumcision came about. That's later on. Chapter 17 of Genesis is when Abraham is circumcised and then he received circumcision as a sign and a seal of a reality already in his heart that he 
was a believer and he sought God and he followed the Lord and it was a sign and seal of that righteousness he had by faith that was true of him even before circumcision came about now this matter of circumcision being sign and seal we, we talked a bit about that last time and you know, sometimes you know, we're, we're Baptist Christians and we get into arguments in our day with our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters who practice infant baptism and we don't see any support for that in the scriptures but what our um, our um, paedo-baptist brothers and sisters do is they say well you know you have circumcision in the old testament like abraham was circumcised and for him it was a sign and a seal um, of the faith that he had and so baptism becomes our sign and seal of the faith that that we have and um, they make that argument. But I just don't think that it is a proper argument. There's a sense in which I kind of alluded to the fact, well, if you take that position, well, a sign and seal was something that you have to see. Abraham saw it in his flesh. He was different than the Gentile. The Jew that went into the bathhouse understood he was different. He was part of a different kind of people. There was a mark in his flesh that made his private member to be different than the Gentiles. He was not the same. He was circumcised, they were not. And it was something that was a constant reminder of his calling of call, being called of God to be part of a covenant nation, a people in this special relationship with God, where God says, I will be a God to you and you will be my people. That's the relationship God had with Israel, and circumcision was a sign of that. Is it true that baptism is the sign of that relationship? Now, it is important to see that this idea of a sign seems to track the, the notion of covenant in the Old Testament. Uh, who can tell me what the first covenant was that God made in the Old Testament? Which actually, it's asserted it's a covenant. You know what that was? Anybody? Was it the one where he walked in between them? That came about in Abraham and later... But before Abraham, there was... Well, was it in the garden? Um, it's not mentioned to be a covenant. As some say it is, but it's not mentioned to be. Noah. Okay, Noah. Uh, Noah, after the flood, came out of the ark. God said, I'll never bring a flood again upon the earth in the way that I've done. And he makes a covenant. And it's a covenant of preservation. That the earth will remain. There'll be seed time, seed, 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 seed time and harvest. There'll be night and day. There'll be the changing of the, sea, of the seasons. There'll be regularity. There'll be continual, continuous life. And no longer will any universal flood ever inundate the world and, and, and kill all of humanity. Doesn't say anything about atom bombs, but does say something about a universal flood brought by God. And what God did was he took the bow and he put it in the heavens. And again, that's like a military understanding that a bow was something that arrows were shot from. And when you're in a relationship of adversary and war, well, you take the, the arrows out of the quiver, you stick it in the bow, and you shoot it at your enemy. And God says, I'm no longer going to be an enemy. And he's going to take the thing that was the implement of war, the bow, and he's going to, again, this is metaphoric. This, now there's a rainbow. There's like this bow in the heavens. And God's not going to take a bow from that heavenly, uh, an arrow from that heavenly bow and strike the earth again. It's going to be his sign of peace. It's going to be his sign. He will never bring a universal flood upon the earth again. So that's the picture 
that we're given of the regularity of the seasons. And every time we see that rainbow in the sky, we say, thank you, Lord, for your promises and your faithfulness and the reality that there will, will, there will be a tomorrow. Until Jesus comes, there will be that regularity that God has said will occur in the world. And so that's a sign. That's a sign. And it, it's, it's meant to be a sign of God's promise. It's meant to remind us of God's promise. It reminds us of God's faithfulness to his promise. That's what a sign is intended to be. It's, uh, it, it guarantees to us that uh, there won't be a universal flood. God's promise is sure. Abraham receives a sign in his flesh. Later on, when God enters into covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, there is another sign that's given. It's chapter 31 of the book of Exodus. I won't turn you there. But that's the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day becomes a sign of God's relationship to the nation of Israel. That Israel is a nation in covenant with God. And the sign of it is that every seventh day, every Saturday, if you're in Israel, everything stops. The farmer's not out in the field. There's not the hubbub of the the society uh, in the cities. Everything comes to a halt. There's rest because this is a nation in covenant with God. And there's a sign of this covenant that is in the keeping of the Sabbath. It becomes a sign of the relationship. Well, what is the sign of our relationship to God in the new covenant? We who have come to believe in Jesus. What's the sign and seal that reminds us that we are his? That his promises to us are sure? That we have the guarantee of um, and the mark of ownership, not so much in our flesh, but yet within our lives. What becomes the mark of the sign and seal that would correspond in the new covenant to circumcision in the old covenant, to the rainbow in the Noahic covenant, to the Sabbath day in the Israelite covenant with God? What's for us the sign and seal? Jan? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It's actually said to be this is the seal. It's said to be the seal of our inheritance. God's mark of ownership. Again, a seal was what the king would put on the document that would say, this is Caesar's authorization. It's a seal. It came right from Caesar. It's a mark of Caesar's ownership of that document. It belongs to him. You know, Former President Trump could argue it out in the courts through the documents he took belong to. When Caesar put a seal, no question, no question. Doesn't have to go to the Supreme Court. Doesn't have to be argued out in the news. It belongs to Caesar. Caesar's ownership is upon the document, as long as the seal is there. Well, God's ownership of us as his people is marked out by the seal of the Holy Spirit that's been given unto us. That's the sign of God's presence in our lives is that God has given us of his spirit and it's that mark of ownership that is true of both Jews and Gentiles in fact when you look at the book of Acts when Gentiles are being received into the church the question was raised should they be circumcised should they be made to keep the law of Moses I mean again that's what God required in the old covenant should they be required to do the same? 
And what you find happening in the book of Acts, look at Acts chapter 15. You have a council that took place in the city of Jerusalem in which the leaders of Paul's Gentile mission, uh, Paul and Barnabas, with other churches and other leaders from Antioch and other places, they all gathered in the city of Jerusalem. And the great question on the table was, should the Gentiles be circumcised? And as this discussion takes place, we read this. Verse 6 of chapter 15 of the book of Acts. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. What matter? Should Gentiles be circumcised? And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That is, in the house of hold of Cornelius. Read about that in chapter 10. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them. This is God bearing witness. This is God saying, I've received these people. These people belong to me. They are part of my church, my assembly. And how did he do it? By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he, and here's some letter to the Romans language, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God's made it clear. They don't need circumcision. Why don't they need circumcision? God has put his mark of ownership upon them by giving them the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God's sign of the new covenant. That the new covenant has come to Gentile believers when the Holy Spirit is received by faith. Believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit of God. Now, when you think about circumcision, it does have its New Testament meaning, but it points to the circumcision of the heart. It doesn't point to baptism. Don't make a, a one-to-one correlation. They, they were circumcised, we're baptized. No, there's not that correlation. Even in the Old Testament, the circumcised people of Israel were told by God they needed the circumcision of the heart. They needed to take away the hardness of the heart the foreskin of the heart. They had to have circumcised ears as well as circumcised hearts because their ears were heavy and hard and failing to hear God's words. And so they had to cut it away. Cut away what's keeping you from hearing God, hearing his word, following him. And that's the point of what circumcision, that's what circumcision pointed to. It didn't point to baptism. It pointed to the circumcision of the heart. Hence it pointed to the reality of the new birth. It pointed to the reality of that secret operation of God within when he makes us his own in regeneration, giving us the new birth, giving us new life in, in Jesus. And all that, of course, is by the Holy Spirit. So it's the mark of the Holy Spirit's operation, the Holy Spirit's presence that brings us to be marked out as God's own. So <clears throat> that seems to be the picture. Now, let's just go back to the text. Paul's made it clear that Abraham received circumcision after he believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He received circumcision as a sign. 
And he says the purpose of all of this, and this is at the end of verse 11, is the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but will also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the mark is not so much whether you have circumcision, but whether you have Abraham's faith. Not his circumcision, but his faith. Abraham believed, and the question is, do you believe? And if you believe, um, Abraham's your father. Now how does he become the father of the Gentiles? That's the great question. And that's all really bound up in what the Old Testament tells us about Abraham's name. (laughs) Who remembers what Abraham's name was before it was Abraham? Abram. Abram. When we're first introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he's called Abram. Not Abraham, but Abram. And the meaning of Abram, when the name is changed in chapter 17, where God says, I will call you Abraham... And let's just turn there and you'll see is that God says I'm going to make you the father of many nations look at Genesis 17 verse 4 behold my covenant is with you and you should be the father of a multitude of nations. You should be the father of a multitude of nations. And in the context of Abraham becoming the father of a multitude of nations, it's said in verse 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, plural, and kings, plural, shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant uh, to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. So what's, what's going on here? What's going on here? Let me try to explain. What does Abram mean? What does the name Abram mean? Exalted father. That's right, exalted father. What does Abraham mean? He's father of many nations. Father of many nations. Now God says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. But at least up to this point in redemptive history, who's Abraham the daddy of? What's that? Isaac. Well, Isaac, yeah. yeah. But I mean, as far as nations go, was he, the, was he the father of the Romans? Was he the father of the Greeks? Was he the father of the Slavs? Was he the father of... His father of, of the Jews, right? They were the ones that believed, and they were the ones in covenant with God. But the ultimate promise that God says is, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, not just one. Not just the daddy of the Jews, but the daddy of all the nations of the earth who will come to be included in the covenant of God. God's ultimate plan has always been not just to have one nation, but to have all the nations become his children have all the nations come under his lordship. In fact, when Abraham is called, remember there was the separating of the nations at the Tower of Babel and the confusion of the languages. And when Abraham is called, it's to remedy that. 
is to bring, bring the world back from the curse of division into a unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God and knowledge of the God of Israel. And so, ultimately, God's plan with Abraham is that he would be a father of the nations of the world, that they would become again the people of God. Now, in the New Testament, this, this gets done. But how does it get done? Does it get done by the nations losing their identity? All becoming Jews? That would make Abraham still the father of one nation. So you see, the requirement was Gentiles had to be circumcised. That would mean all of you here would be Jews today. Not just me. <laughs> I'm, the one after, I'm the token Jew in this, in this church. But you'd all be Jews if circumcision was what was required. But you're not. You can maintain your well derivation from Italy, derivation from Germany, derivation from Scots Irish in the South, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I got, got, got you right. Yeah. So you maintain your ethnicity, and you know you can enjoy whatever it is your particular contribution of ethnicity brings to the table in one church where everything's welcome. And everything's appreciated and everything's loved and everything can contribute to a, a unity in the midst of diversity. Not just a unity that's just unity. Everybody the same. So this seems to be the point. If circumcision was what God required, we'd all become Jews. And Abraham would still be the... He'd be an exalted father, but just of one nation. For Abraham to be the father of many nations, there has to be the maintenance of the identity of the nations and so that the kings of the earth would become the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ and the peoples of the earth would become the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ and Christianity would be a universal religion through faith in Jesus Christ and not through circumcision but the thing that unites us would be our faith in Christ and the possession of the Holy Spirit and not some external ritual performed on us by a surgical procedure from a rabbi. No, this is not the way it's, it is. And hence, Abraham then becomes the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. Now that's an important phrase, the heir of the world, because it speaks of inheritance. Now, Abraham was to inherit the land, right? He was to inherit the land of Canaan, although he never lived to buy anything, have anything, possession in it, except for a burial ground for his, his, his wife and his loved ones. And he himself was buried in the land. But yet he's the heir of the world, in that his descendants ultimately would come to possess the earth. His descendants would ultimately come to inherit, I guess what Hebrews calls the age to come. And we inherit that age to come through faith in Christ. We become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That speaks of that in chapter 8. And we read, for instance, in the scriptures in the Old Testament, that the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And Jesus quotes that in the Sermon on the Mount. The meek shall inherit the earth. The meek are the people of God, the people that have been humbled by the recognition of their need of Jesus through the gospel. And we are made to be those who are heirs of the world to come. And that promise of inheritance was given to Abraham as father and all of his descendants. 
and we become the descendants of Abraham again through faith in Christ. He's the heir of the world. Hopefully it's Jesus, his great son, who is the heir of the age to come. And we become children of Abraham through faith in Christ. We become related to Abraham and these promises of inheritance through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul's telling us, is that Abraham becomes the heir of the world that promised to him, not through the law, but by the righteousness of faith. For if the adherence of the law, if, our, if it is the adherence of the law, who are to be the heirs, that is the circumcised, that is the people that keep the law of Moses, that is the people that become Jews, those are the heirs, adherence of the law. If those are the ones who would become heirs, it would just be a Jewish thing, right? It would just be a Jewish thing. And Paul says, faith is null and the promise is void. It's not a question of what you believe, it's a question of where you're circumcised. (laughs) Did you become a Jew? For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, that we are all the offspring of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate end of Paul's argument. As we become Abraham's offspring, through faith in Christ, through the promises of God, of the universal inheritance of the earth, from Abraham's offspring, might be guaranteed to all who, like Abraham, believe in the promises of God. As it is written, verse 17, I've made you the father of many nations. Amazing, isn't it? It's a, a sustained argument. Paul's arguing that you don't need to be Jewish to become a Christian. And and Jews have no reason to boast. Abraham had no reason to boast. No one has priority over any other. We're all saved in the same way. And it all depends upon our relationship to God in faith. Through Christ, the seed of Abraham, through Abraham who becomes our spiritual father, whose promises were fulfilled in him as the father of many nations, as all the nations come to God in the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ. So, is that part of it clear? Because now we move on to another part. I mean, that's a little bit... Um, you know, you got, you got, you got to get the Bible history down. <laughs> you, you got to get God's promises to Abraham down. You got to get Abraham's name right. You got to get all those things in your head clear to really understand what Paul's argument is. Are we, are we all on the same page with that? Because it's time to move on. And where we want to move on to is the nature of this faith that justifies. What did it mean for Abraham to believe God? Well, Paul mentions in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Abraham's faith was placed in the presence of the God in whom he believed. God came to him. God's presence was made known to him. God appeared to Abraham in chapter 15. And God said to him, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Abraham stood in the presence of God. And then he made the complaint, What will you give me? I have no heir. And God says, You'll have an heir. God says that you're going to have a son. And he makes it clear it's going to come not from Eliezer of Damascus, 
And it's not going to come from Ishmael, which came in chapter 16. It's going to come from the fruit of your own body, Abraham. And so, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, he has to stand as a 90-year-old man who looks at his own body and says, I am well past the age of childbearing. I cannot beget children. His wife is an old woman herself. Her womb is not able to conceive children. She's gone long past the point of childbearing. So he stands in the presence of the God who makes these promises. You're going to be a daddy, Abraham. You're going to be a father. You're going to be a father of a multitude of nations when he doesn't have a child. He's childless. He's past the year of years of child. His wife's past the years of childbearing. He's past the years of begetting children. How in the world does this come about that an old man and an old woman will bear a child? Well, again, he stands in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, look at those two phrases. The God in whom he believed is. Uh, 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 not just any God it's not just a generic God it's not God how you conceive him and God how you want to make of him it's a, a specific God a specific God who comes and appears to Abraham makes himself known to Abraham and Abraham perceives that this is the God who gives life to the dead this is the God of resurrection that's why you can preach this passage on Easter Sunday with no problems God is the God of resurrection, the God who gives life to the dead. And not only is he the God of resurrection, he's also the God of creation. He calls into existence the things that do not exist. Like a womb able to bear children. Like a body able to beget children. God is able to call into existence the things that do not exist. He's the God of creation. He's the God who gives life to the dead. He's the God of resurrection. And so God comes and says, Abraham, you're going to be a daddy. From your own body will come a child. And in fact, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And so the passage tells us in hope, he believed against hope. I mean, come on, you have to understand that it's not just, well, God said it, therefore it's all settled. Abraham's a realist. Faith exists in a real world with real uh, things that we need to consider. We we don't just bottom out. Uh, My body's not able to beget children. Sarah's womb's not able to conceive children. How is this all going to come about? And so there's a sense in which, hey, this is hopeless. So you factor that in. It's against hope. But then you factor in the word of God. The word of the promise of the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the God who has power to create, who has power to resurrect. And so in hope of that God, who is the God of power to create, power to resurrect, he believes. Again, it's not irrational. It's not, it's, not, it's not something foolish. 
I mean, to believe that God's going to raise the dead on the basis of our own whim, we'd like to see it. Wouldn't that be great? We see a resurrection this morning. Imagine Easter Sunday, seeing a resurrection. We claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. So let's host a resurrection. Let's go out to the graves of the dead and declare God is going to demonstrate His power in raising the dead. Well, we're going to be out there in the cold quite a while and nothing's going to happen. Why? Because we don't have a word from God that says He will do this. It's not a question of divine power. It's a question of God's own word and being faithful to that word. But Abraham had more than just a whim. He had the word of the God of creative power and resurrection power who said you will bear a a child. And so in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And he didn't weaken in faith. And that's the easy part of it. Is How do you sustain that confidence? How do you sustain faith for the long haul? Especially when years go by and still no child. And although in chapter 17 he says that this time next year Sarah will conceive. So it wasn't at that point long in coming. But yet Abraham had gone through many years of no child, no heir. He'd gone into his own plan to have a child through Hagar. It's easy to become weak in faith when you look at the facts, what you're dealing with, his own body. It says, as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. She's not able to conceive. But yet, ultimately, there was no unbelief that made him waver. And the idea of wavering is the idea of two judgments. Of two judgments. I mean, there might have been considerations. Hey, this doesn't look very promising. But there was something that overcame that consideration. This doesn't look very promising. And that is the settled judgment that God is able to do what God said he'd do. God has the power to do it. And God has the faithfulness to do it. And that's where our faith needs to be resting. Our faith needs to be settled. Not in two minds. Not in two opinions. Not whether he loves me today and hates me tomorrow. But a settled judgment of his goodwill. His gracious intentions. His wondrous provisions. That overcome all the obstacles that life brings our way. To say, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about the next thing? What about that? How is this consistent with Christian faith? We have one settled judgment in a God who's promised. We don't waver. We don't have two minds concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He's able to do it. He's the power to do it. And he has the willingness to do it. And that's where we gain our faith. Our, 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 how some small faith, which is still saving faith, becomes strong faith. Believing, not, not looking at circumstances, not looking at all the negatives, not looking at all the... I mean, it's not that we discount the reality of those things. They're there. We don't deny it. But we have something that overcomes it. 
we have the word of the living God, the God who cannot lie, the God who has power and willingness to do what he has declared he would do. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what saving faith is. That's what justifying faith is. It's not just tipping your hat to Jesus. It's not just nodding your head in his direction. It's not just praying a prayer. It's believing. It's believing in the God who raises the dead. It's believing in the God who gives life where no life is. The God who's able to do what he has promised. Whether you're Jewish or you're a Gentile, whether you're circumcised or you're not circumcised, whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your background is, whatever your disadvantages were, whatever, that's no, that's no obstacle. That's no hindrance. To the God whose promises are sure and steadfast and unwavering. God's not of two minds about this matter, and neither should we be. And Paul concludes that the words it was counted to him, that is, as righteousness, were not written for his sakes alone. This is not just an exercise in history, looking back at Abraham, saying what was true of him. But seeing what was true of him is true of all believers, because again, he's the father of the faithful. And so he says, for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now again, there are people who have a little bit of a problem with this whole matter of delivered for our trespasses. Again, The word delivered is the same word you read in the Gospels of Jesus being handed over. A pilot handing him over to the officers and arresting him. Of, uh, I'm sorry, not pilot, Judas handing him over to the officers to arrest him. Of the, of the officers handing him over to the priests. Of the priest handing him over to Pilate. And Pilate handing him over to death. Same word. Same word. And the ultimate thing is, it's God who handed him over. It's, it's God who brings life where death is, who through the death of Jesus brings life. And so we who were in our, dead in our sins, subject to death because of our sins, now have one who died in our place. And so Jesus was delivered up by the hand of God for our trespasses. He died for the dead, for those who are worthy of death, those who are under sentence of death. He received the sentence of death for us, for our trespasses, and was raised for our justification. Now, again, raised for our justification is an unusual statement in Scripture. Um, but I think the idea of being raised for our justification is that the resurrection of Jesus is, is, is the life that's imparted to us who believe. We believe through the power of a risen Jesus, a risen Lord. Paul said, prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 that they would know the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us who believe. 
and he says it's in accordance with the power that rose Christ from the dead. And so that power of resurrection becomes a power that raises us from spiritual deadness, indifference to the things of God and brings us to newness of life. And hence, that's faith. We come and believe through the power of the resurrected Lord. And then, hence, we're justified through the power of the resurrection of Christ. Christ's resurrection is the resurrection power that brings us to faith. And that's true of all who believe, Jew and Gentile. No distinction. And that's where Paul ends the fourth chapter of Romans. Any comments or questions about the exposition? I know parts of it I hurried through, but we really need to get through Romans sooner or later. <laughs> but uh, any points that you'd like me to go over again, or any points that I should make clearer than I've made it? If not, we're going to move into chapter 5, God willing, next week. In chapter 5, Paul's going to address some of the issues of what results from this justification that we have received by faith. This standing that Jew and Gentile alike have received. What does it bring? What are the benefits? What are the fruits? And um, you'll see it in chapter 5. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he moves on from there to matters of Christian life and experience that every believer, Jew and Gentile, I come to know through the power of the grace of the gospel. Well, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we, we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the best part of the gospel is that it's true it chronicles what you've done in history it chronicles what you've done in raising your son our Lord Jesus from the dead and it does bring us to the certainty of the knowledge that your promises will never fail that your purposes will never cease to fulfill your design for this world in which death is not the final word but light and life everlasting comes to us through the power of the resurrected Christ we're thankful that we can see the obstacles in the way and not be deterred though we're not blind to them though we're not indifferent to their pressure yet there is your word that will never fail your power that will bring to pass and perform all that you have declared and your ability and willingness to bless us and to do us good. And so it's in this confidence we rest. It's in this hope that we endure. It's in this certainty that we continue on and persevere in faith and in faithfulness. We ask you to receive our praise and thanksgiving and ask you to bless this remainder of this day. Bless us as we greet one another, as we have a time of refreshments, and as we enter into the morning hour of worship. We'd ask in Jesus' name, amen.